Now, if you found this podcast, it's probably because you are thinking about taking out an AVO to help you feel safer, or the police have taken out an AVO on your behalf as they hold fears for your safety, or you have had an AVO taken out against you because of an incident of domestic and family violence. In any case, you are looking for more information to understand the process. And whilst this podcast is all about AVOs and explains the process, it's important to understand that it is just that. A process. It is not the solution to your problems. It will not resolve the conflict you are having with your partner. The AVO process is not the end result. It does not mean the end of your relationship, but it has been designed to end violence. And whilst we discuss the process of the AVO, this podcast will also provide valuable information about the red flags to look out for in your relationship why they break down, the impact of violence within a family and the tools and strategies needed to rebuild or end them respectfully. But first, just a warning, this content contains detailed references regarding violence towards women, men and children and the impact of that trauma. Whilst it is being created respectfully, with all listeners considered, it contains real uncensored accounts and is not intended to offend or alienate either gender. We look at the root cause and contributing factors to family dysfunction and violence. I aim to share all perspectives that raise awareness of the issues that need to be addressed so we as a society can create a more respectful way of dealing with intimate partner violence, violence against women and domestic abuse. What I do know is that this process has probably brought up feelings of hurt, shame and guilt, even resentment. And as you will find out, this podcast is not just all about AVOs. It's a podcast helping you to understand why and how it got to this point. You'll hear from all sides, frontline services, family law specialists, couples, counsellors, advocates, and people who have been through it and what they learned about themselves. We're going to be looking at the problems relationships face with and without an AVO and how an AVO can help, hinder or harm. Now, there are several pieces to this pie. And I know that many of you are probably visual learners. So I thought this was a great analogy because the pie is just too big for us to eat all in one sitting and we need a coordinated approach in solving the problems, accepting the root cause and look at the contributing factors of family violence. So what are the problems? If you are in a relationship that is having problems, I want you to consider these three things. Number one, the problem is not a problem until you call it one and it's actually your problem. Number two, the problem is you and your reactions based on your beliefs, not the other person. And three, every problem has a solution and it's your responsibility to find out what it is. You're most likely experiencing high levels of conflict if you are listening to this podcast and you've probably developed a way to deal with it already, but it's not working and it doesn't really resolve the issues that you're having. Things keep inflaming and you're reaching levels of emotional exhaustion, which is impacting on every aspect of your life. You are looking for alternatives to deal with this kind of stress that is putting a strain on other things like poor work performance, conflict with extended family or friends, or what I consider to be the most important relationship you will ever have, the one you have with yourself. 
Self-esteem and self-worth are critical needs for humans to function with meaning and purpose, in which case you will have to look at the patterns of behavior and cycles of abuse and access the different kinds of intervention and prevention tools that navigate away from violence. We also know that this is why some victims of domestic violence stay with offenders. They are convinced they cannot survive without the perpetrator. But there were two sides of him, you know. Um, there was a side that would bring home handmade chocolates or, you know, occasionally bring home flowers. And then there was the side that was totally controlling and expected you to be there when he said for whatever he needed. You know, for a long time, the good outweighed the bad and we had a good life. You know, we used to go out for dinner almost every night of the week. Um, you know, we had a, a good life as a, as a young couple in the eastern suburbs. I had very little confidence. Um, you know, I, I, um, developed IBS throughout the relationship. So, um, that's because of the stress that I was permanently under. Um, you know, I just, I used to lie in bed at night, terrified of what he might do when he was, um, in one of his manic episodes, um, he would come in and out of the room, slamming the doors, um, opening and closing drawers, turning the main lights on, even though you were fast asleep. And the stress that that puts on your body and brain is so immense. You know, you just don't know what's going to happen or when he might take it to the next level. The bad was, I don't, I don't know that it's ever predictable. I think that you learn to manage that behavior. Um, and I always try and say we obviously don't manage it that well because otherwise women wouldn't be being killed on, you know, on an average of one woman a week in Australia. But we try and manage that behavior as best as we can. And that's why you end up walking around on eggshells the whole time you're in that relationship because you are permanently trying to work out what's coming next and how you can prevent an explosion. Now, if this is you, let me assure you that there is a lot of support and services available to help you with money, food, shelter, and protection. There are counsellors who will build your resilience, help you design a safety and exit plan, and support you as you restructure your life the way you want it. If you are the offender, let me say, you are teaching the people you love how to live without you. Naturally, people will move away from pain. It will take time and they may seek shelter and protection by withdrawing, complying, or even testing with acts of resistance. But they are working out ways to avoid the conflict and stay safe until they can find a way out of the relationship. Just trying to make sure that everything was perfect for him, um, you know, that I didn't speak out of line, that i made sure that I was home when I was supposed to be home, that, you know, he had full access to my bank accounts or any money that he needed, that, you know, he felt that he was the center of my life and that there was no one else, you know, that he was my main priority and that I would put him above everybody else, including my own parents. I left him in early 2010 um, I, I rented an apartment secretly. And one day when I knew he was going to be out of the house for the day, I went to the um, local petrol station, hired a ute, and I was ready to go. Um, I'd been ready for a couple of months and that was the day I needed to do it. 
I just felt this sense of freedom. And I thought, no matter what you do now, it doesn't matter because I don't have to wake up with you every day. I don't wake up in fear every day of what's coming next and what's going to happen and which version of you might be coming to coming home that day. I don't have to deal with you. And it felt bloody fantastic. So what is an AVO? Is it just a piece of paper or a powerful means of regaining the control over your life that you gave away to someone else? I do empathize with those couples who are trying to resolve conflict. It is not easy. And whilst conflict is inevitable in relationships, the way you resolve it in a healthy way is when you are calm and you are able to listen and thoughtfully consider everything that is going on. I say this because any type of threat to your body, mind or soul triggers a chemical reaction in your brain that floods the body with adrenaline and prepares you for fight, flight or freeze. It shuts down those parts of the brain that take in the broader surrounds and creates a very narrow focus on survival. They are instincts that take over to keep you alive. Now this surge of adrenaline can be quite addictive and the relief from the intense situation quite profound. So it's a cycle. And that's why many victims of violence do not react the way that we would think they would in these situations, especially in sexual assaults. Now it's important to remember the elements of conflict create shifts of power and control over a person or a situation and your words and your actions have a huge impact on the way a person would respond and this is purely for self-preservation. We'll be talking about the chilling effect and the impact that that has on relationships in later episodes but for now we need to be observing the parts of the cycle and the triggers that escalate conflict to help you understand and better deal with the situation. One thing we have to remember is that many domestic abuse survivors a strong, independent women. And that's why they're much more of a challenge to try and control and destroy. They, um, you know, that's why they were sought out by their perpetrator. And so, you know, in the beginning when he used to hit me, as soon as he'd finished, I would stand up and say things like, does that make you feel like a man? Do you feel like a big man now? And, you know, it probably took me about a year to realize that the punishments were twice as bad when I stood up for myself afterwards. So, you know, eventually I learned to just stop talking afterwards and cop what was coming. Um, And, you know, yes, I did have a choice to leave. When you see it with hindsight, I could have left. But at that stage, it wasn't even on my radar. I was in love with this person and I was isolated. I didn't feel like I had anywhere to go. I didn't feel like I had anyone I could confide in. And so I stuck it out, hoping that it would all turn around. Now, I'm not saying that in the face of anger, meeting that person with kindness and empathy is going to stop the conflict. And I'm not saying that fighting back and matching their level of anger is the right thing to do. But I will say in any heated argument, keeping yourself safe is a priority. Now, in each episode, we will be taking a look at the red flags of abusive relationships and how to implement strategies that better deal with and reduce the escalation of conflict so we navigate away from violence. We'll be looking at how the police process and application for an apprehended violence order can help you in your relationship, hinder restorative practices to repair the relationship and how it can do more harm than good. Now, domestic violence has not always been handled well because it sits in an area between civil and criminal called family, with behaviours if they were seen in public would not be tolerated and actually amount to criminal offences or some level of civil accountability. 
I'm going to be speaking to former police prosecutors and family lawyers about this in other episodes, just to show you how the current system is fundamentally flawed and needs to change. And I know that it is, so I'll also be bringing you those strategies and how things are working well. I just want to reiterate here that intimate relationships and family are a sacred space. It's a place where you're allowed to be you, your faults, flaws, and fuck-ups. You are forgiven for mistakes, opportunities to learn and grow as a person. As we'll discuss in a minute, it's a place of safety, support, and often secrecy. These intimate relationships hold information about the other person that no one else knows. And if they did, it might trigger shame, guilt, embarrassment, and humiliation. Now, because of this vulnerability, it is also a place where fear can infect us and change the way we think, be, and do because of the judgments, expectations, and assumptions made in relationships naturally. What you believe to be the truth, what you believe to be right, are based on core values and beliefs that you were given as a child. Now, they might not be the same. They don't have to be. And everyone is entitled to have their own and for them to be respected. So at this point, I'd like to say that from many of the domestic violence situations I have dealt with, the couples did not want the relationship to end. They just wanted the behavior of their partner to change so they felt safe. Conflict can be healthy for a relationship because it works out your commonalities, your values, and your priorities. And in most relationships, people want four things, acknowledgement, appreciation, acceptance, and an apology when you're wrong. Now, not the words, but the changed behavior. So I know you want to know more about AVOs in the process. So I'll say it again. It's important to understand it's just that. This process is not the solution, nor is it the end result. In basic terms, an apprehended violence order, also known as an IPVO in other states, is an essential piece of paper that carries the weight of legislating respectful behaviour. It's a set of behaviours that reflect the human rights of individuals to live free from oppression and fear. It forces the personal, physical, emotional, psychological and financial freedoms afforded to people in relationships. And it also identifies overarching behaviours that are known to instill fear and exert control over another person. Now, the pin-op is the person in need of protection from the behaviour of the person with whom they have a relationship or have had a relationship with. The pin-op is not necessarily a victim of domestic violence, as we will cover, but her fears of violence occurring are real, regardless of any other person's opinion. In most circumstances, victims of domestic violence only discover the insidious abusive behaviours of family violence as they unpack their experience with either an investigator or a counsellor. Fortunately for victims, the dismissal of these fears, despite no evidence of violence, is no longer the norm. This protection order has a specific function, which we will go on to discuss in detail. It's important to acknowledge and accept that victims of domestic violence have invested in this relationship they will often keep returning to fix what is broken until they can't do it anymore. It is usually at the expense of their own self-worth and it will be imperative for them to see that those incidents of violence are very much a part of the person that they love. This is also why they stay. And I'll be discussing this through the podcast series. So it's important to mention that AVOs have the potential to help But as every situation is different, every incident brings with it a different level of abuse or acts of violence. And because of the emotional component in relationships, 
The nature of conflict and the capacity of both parties to resolve it respectfully. In many cases, these orders provide time and space needed by both to recognize the patterns. It gives it an opportunity to rekindle the trust, communication, and restore respect. It provides time and opportunities for partners to get the help and support that they need, whatever's going on for them. It allows them to set up boundaries and work on their own issues, whatever that is for them. I can tell you, though, it's exhausting and frustrating work for the police, as quite often they are dealing with the same people for the majority of the time. To this end, I understand that who the offender showed up as for the victim most of the time was not the person I was arresting, and this is the real barrier for victims to reporting domestic violence. They know there are consequences, and they will probably be blamed or feel guilty for causing this consequence. It's easy enough to explain this is a natural consequence to violence, but it is difficult for victims to comprehend as they don't necessarily want the relationship to end. They just want their partner's behaviour to change. And at no stage did I ever think about calling the police purely because I was still in love with him and still torn between knowing that I was now in an abusive relationship and not wanting to leave because I so desperately wanted it to work out and for him to go back to being that man that I fell in love with. And so being so torn, I knew that if I called the police, there would be consequences and it was likely that we would split up. And I, deep down, I don't think I really wanted to lose him. AVOs are an intervention tool and a prevention strategy. Now it's flexible enough that if it's investigated and implemented correctly, can actually really work. I say this because I have seen AVOs being used as weapons against another person as a means to silence their concerns, control their behaviour and restrict access to children. I have seen them used in family courts to gain advantage and in criminal courts to inflict revenge. Now, the respondent is the person who has instilled fear through acts or threats of intimidation, harassment, stalking, assault, or otherwise interfering with a person with whom they have had a relationship with. He or she is not necessarily an offender, and as Mandy, my psychologist, will explain, hurt people hurt people, and we need to stay curious as to where that is coming from. Now, for the purpose of this, I want to acknowledge that my experience is very different to most. I have investigated domestic violence for many years, presented evidence to court, and been an agent for victims and questioned offenders about their intentions and motives around violence. In the end, this is about power and control over the person or the situation based on the belief that that is what was expected of them. I've seen the anger across an offender's face. I have seen the fear in a victim's eyes and I've witnessed her body shake when she hears his voice and I've heard every excuse and justification in the universe. And I still believe that violence is a choice. What I have noticed in the media is that people are no longer asking why she stays, why didn't she leave, but more, why does he do it? It is this curiosity that gives me the opportunity to answer with succinct clarity because he chooses to. He doesn't choose to react that way with work colleagues or he'd be in a lot of trouble. He wouldn't choose to respond that way if it was someone of notoriety or importance. He does it because he can and quite possibly because he doesn't have the verbal communication skills to express his frustration or pain. He hasn't taken the opportunity adulthood gives men to invest in their capacity to recognise and regulate their emotions. 
Social and peer pressure, social conformity and role models influence those choices. But what we will find out from the people I have spoken with is that much of the anger expressed by men is childhood trauma, experiencing it or witnessing it as the only means of control and power over a personal situation. This relates directly back to the burdens of male primacy, the expectations of being a man. We know that just like women, men suffer from low levels of self-worth and reduced confidence when confronted with failure and rejection. And these are the skills that they need to learn to earn respect. By now, virtue of a relationship, both parties are accountable for the impact of their behavior on their partner, no matter how justified this person feels. I spoke with survivor of domestic violence, Rachel Natali, who is now a DV advocate and the CEO of Lakahi, a foundation providing supportive caseworkers for women leaving abusive relationships. So when I first fine and, um, you know, he was really romantic, um, but I started to see red flags quite early on and within about six weeks, we went to the theatre to see Billy Elliot. He bought me tickets when I was in the UK for my birthday and I was um, almost late for the show. By then I'd started nannying part-time in the eastern suburbs and I decided to get the bus into the city and I didn't realise that that bus was going to take forever and peak out of traffic. So he was on the phone to me every five minutes on the bus screaming at me more and more that I was going to be late, that I was going to miss the start of the show, that we would get locked out. And when I got there, he continued to scream at me even though I just made it in time. And to be honest, Pip, I'd never ever been spoken to like that in my life. And so I just thought, F you. And we went and sat down. And in the interval, um, I looked at him, thought he'd apologize. He didn't. So I just got up and went and got a drink and food by myself. And he did the same. And at the end of the show, he just got up and walked off. And I followed him out. I didn't really know where I was going. I just moved to Sydney less than two months before, um, I was in a strange city by myself at night trying to keep up with him and I couldn't keep up with him. He was walking too quickly. So I ended up being terrified, left in the city by myself, managed to eventually find a bus stop where I could get a bus back to where we lived. And when I did get home, he told me that I could sleep on the sofa that night and find somewhere else to live the next day because we were over. The next day we talked it through, we managed to work it out. But for me, it was the first the first little sign of that level of control and manipulation. Although, of course, at that time, I, I didn't see it for what it was. Um, only with hindsight do I look back now and realize that was the start of the control of testing how far he could push me before he could reel me back in. So um, I think, you know, there's a lot of control and manipulation. Um, there was an episode um, about a month later when it was his birthday. I bought him an ice cream cake for his birthday. We don't have them in England or we certainly didn't all those years ago. And I thought well, they were the most amazing things ever. So I'd ordered him an ice cream cake. He decided to start a new diet the day before the ice cream cake got um, delivered to our house and he threw it across the kitchen because it was so appalling of me to order a cake on his birthday when he'd said quite clearly that he was starting a diet that day. Um, and I just started to see those signs, but I felt totally isolated. I knew one other person in Australia 
and she lived in Melbourne and quite quickly he isolated me from her very cleverly, just made sure that he put her down. At that stage, I was actually able to tell her what was going on with him and I. I still didn't, I still hadn't learned to be too ashamed to tell people and I trusted her and I think it was only after he got rid of her from my life that he'd isolated me totally from her that I started to realize hang on the more people I'm honest with the less people I'm going to have in my life and so here I was isolated and also never wanting to admit failure I had the option to leave him and go back to England but I wasn't ready to admit that my relationship had failed and that my hope for this had failed and go back with my tail between my legs. So I just painted this happy life lie here in Australia. Um, and as time went on, there were some physical incidents. He grabbed my wrist. He would hold me against the wall. And then it just deteriorated. Um, I, I can't even tell you how many remote controls, phones, iPads, laptops got smashed up during our time together. He would throw everything um, if it was in his reach when he lost his temper. I think it's when the perpetrator feels a loss of control in some way. Um, if anything goes wrong, it's your fault. I was, you know, I was never quick enough, smart enough, good enough, no matter what I did, it was never enough for him. And he would tolerate me for a certain period of time. And when he couldn't tolerate me anymore, he would lose control and lose his temper. Um, and it was always my fault, no matter what had gone wrong. He was a huge gambler. So if he lost a bet, that was also my fault. Um, you know, if he um, didn't get a bet on in time, that was my fault. It didn't matter what I did. Um, everything was my fault and he just blamed everything on me rather than deal with the own issues in his life. The one thing that I really feel differentiated him was that he was very, very rarely apologetic. So he didn't go through that standard cycle. Um, he has been diagnosed with bipolar. So he was, he would go into depressive modes, but not really because of his um, behavior as much um, because of other things that were going on in his life. But he was never apologetic afterwards and trying to make it up to you and sending you loving messages. But there were two sides of him, you know. Um, there was a side that would bring home handmade chocolates or, you know, occasionally bring home flowers. And then there was the side that was totally controlling and expected you to be there when he said for whatever he needed. I used to be a social butterfly and, you know, I was always out with friends and very sociable and obviously a lot of that stopped. Um, I, I, I knew very few people um, and I, you know, I just couldn't be open. You can't become friends with people and not be able to tell them about your home life. Um, so I really was very isolated. Um, you know, I just, I became a shadow of my former self. I just left him in early 2010 um, I, I rented an apartment secretly and one day when I knew he was going to be out of the house for the day, I went to the um, local petrol station, hired a ute and I was ready to go. Um, I'd been ready for a couple of months and that was the day I needed to do it. Um, but within a couple of weeks, he'd wormed his way back in. He was uh, loving and supportive and realized that things needed to change. And of course, I was still under that control and manipulation. And so within six months, I'd moved back in. And uh, we, um, we were already engaged when I left. So we 
um, set a new date for the wedding. And even though the day I moved back in, I knew nothing had changed. He was vile and aggressive and disgusting. Um, I just felt like that was it. That was the life I was going to lead now. And I just had to accept that. So we got married in late 2011. And unbeknownst to me, the um, my uh, ex-husband started having an affair on his Bucks night. So within three months of being married, he'd left me for somebody else. And when I found out that he left me for somebody else, he obviously wasn't very happy about it because how dare I know about what was going on. So um, he moved back into the house after he'd been living with her for a couple of weeks Um, and he was still seeing her on and off. And one night he went out with her. He didn't come back home until two or three in the morning drunk. And the next day after I got home from work, he wanted my car. And I refused to give him the keys to my car since he showed so little respect. So he grabbed a photo frame that was sitting next to the TV and put it straight through the TV screen. Um, at which stage I feared that he may take things further with my life. And so for the first time ever, I rang the police. Um, they turned up and they took out an AVO against him. Life is done with him and we're where we are. The police were um, following through. So we went to court and had the um, interim AVO put in place. And then two months later, before we got to the final hearing, He came back with his tail between his legs, said he wanted to make a go of our marriage. He made a big mistake. And um, uh, we slept together once and I fell pregnant with twins. Well, the AVO is there as a protective measure. And, you know, part of the AVO that we had was that he wasn't able to come within 100 metres of the house. Um, But at that stage, you know, I still wanted my marriage to work. Um, There was still a part of me that wanted to work things out. Look, the first time they were involved, I definitely don't think it helped. Um, He was extremely angry with me that I had contacted the police and he felt like the policewoman had a personal vendetta against him Um, She was actually amazing and when she found out that I had fallen pregnant, she um, allowed me to drop the AVO. I mean, it's obviously taken out by the police, not yourself, but, um, you know, she she made those um, the AVO go away um, because she knew that I I wasn't ready to follow through with that and it wouldn't be in my best interest. But, um, you know, he he definitely held that against me for a very long time. And so he came over one evening and um, we were talking and everything was going really well. So he was in breach of the AVO at that time. Um, Unfortunately, I received a text message on my phone that he saw he wasn't happy about it. So he um, went onto our balcony and threw my phone down onto the concrete below. And so I quickly closed the screen door and locked it so that I was safely inside and he was locked outside and he was trying to kick his way through the door. Um, And the neighbours ended up calling the police. When he heard that the police were coming, he quickly fled. But I was still under such a level of control that when they came and spoke to me, I denied that he'd been there because I knew 
there would be consequences for him if he had breached the AVO. And I think what people have to understand is that while you are a victim in that situation, you are still, there's still a part of you that is going to protect the perpetrator. Even though you know it's the wrong thing to do, you're the one that has to face the consequences too. And the fear of the consequences that may come from him outweigh anything else. And on April the 2nd, 2015, he assaulted me for the very last time. He um, punched me, he um, slammed me into a door and he dragged me around the boys' room by my hair. Um, as we grappled over my mobile phone because he'd found some messages on there that he didn't like. Um, And so that night I sat in front of my mirrored wardrobes. He was out. He disappeared for the evening. The boys were fast asleep in the room next door and I brushed my hair where it was matted from the fight and it came out in clumps. And it was the first moment of clarity for me was that here I was, an educated woman, I was doing my master's degree when I met him and this man had seriously hurt me again and he wasn't going to stop. And I felt, you know what, one day he's either going to put me in hospital or he's going to kill me. And I wasn't worried for myself, but I was worried for my children that in two and a half years, he'd never changed a nappy. He'd never fed them. He'd never bathed them. I was the one who did everything for them. And if I wasn't there, who would look after them? And that was enough for me to ring the police and make a full statement. And so they came out, they took my statement and he was, they took out an AVO against him and he was charged with and later convicted of assault, occasioning actual bodily harm. When just before the boys turned two, I had just had enough. Um, I realised that I couldn't keep going the way I was. I realized that his behavior was never going to improve and that I didn't want two little boys growing up in that situation. And, and so I started to think about in my mind um, a life without him being in it. Yeah, I mean, the police in that situation were great. They came and took out the AVO. and He was charged with and later convicted of assault, occasioning actual bodily harm. A 12-month good behaviour bond. That's pretty standard, I think. Um, and, and, you know, that's one of the issues with the courts is there's, you know, there's, there's different judges that look for different things. I, I know a judge that I have dealt with through the foundation that has said that for him hair pulling is um, a jail time offence. But we shouldn't have that difference where, you know, for one judge it is and for one judge it's not. It should just be a set standard across the board. But the only way I can describe it is I felt such massive relief at the freedom. And no matter what he threw at us, in those first few weeks, he tried so hard to destroy me. Um, We applied for Start Safely with Housing New South Wales. He... um, rang them and told them that I had money hidden in England to get my housing application put on hold. Rang Centrelink and made false allegations about me to them. Um, Made bankrupt when I was in a relationship with him. Again, his idea um, was to declare bankrupt, not tell um, the authorities that I had a house in England in my maiden name, 
We then later sold that and he gambled away that money too. But he told the um, AFSA that I had money, you know, I had declared bankrupt, but I had a house in England. And so I was looking at jail time for making a false declaration. And so he just caused as much trouble in every area of our life as I could. But no matter what happened, I just felt this sense of freedom. And I thought, no matter what you do now, it doesn't matter because I don't have to wake up with you every day. I don't wake up in fear every day of what's coming next and what's going to happen and which version of you might be coming to coming home that day. I don't have to deal with you. And it felt bloody fantastic. And that's what got me through. You know, I just, I lived on adrenaline. We had five different homes in seven weeks. We lived in a motel. We lived in a um, crisis accommodation. And then eventually we got our own home. And the one thing that was consistent all the way through was my caseworker. If you care about me at all, I am so appreciative of Rachel sharing her experience with me and hope it gives you some valuable insights into why she stayed and why he did it. She will also be sharing her two very different experiences with AVOs and the police in our next episode. I want to also point out that it was a conversation that articulated how she completely owned the decision to stay in that relationship. I got from her that it was an empowering decision to leave after realising what many around her would have been thinking, and that is that she deserved better. Now, it's been five years since Rachel left that toxic situation. She now smiles all the time, she breathes a lot deeper, and she connects with people who really inspire her. She is taking on far bigger challenges than she would have ever dreamed about before this happened, and with two young boys at her feet. Rachel is making a difference to people's lives and will hold your hand through the chaos if you reach out. And you can. Just go to www.lakahi.org.au, that's L-O-K-A-H-I, or email her at rach at lakahi.org.au to find out more. Now I'm going to leave you with this quote by Kachi Ricky, who sums it up very, very nicely. It takes a very strong individual to sit with themselves, calm their storms and heal all of their issues without trying to bring someone else into that chaos. Your journey into self-love is just that, and you are doing it. So until next time, stay safe.